Ascent Classical Academies is a growing network of tuition-free K-12 charter schools where students are taught how to live independent, responsible, and joyful lives. Ascent Classical offers an American classical education that emphasizes a content-rich curriculum and virtues that have withstood the test of time. By looking to the past, studying ancient and modern civilizations, and learning from America's forefathers, students learn to promote and preserve the best of our American and Western traditions. Ascent Classical students have a well-trained mind and a generous heart, preparing them to flourish in life as critical thinkers and virtuous citizens. Serving the communities of Brighton, Grand Junction, Lone Tree, and Windsor, Colorado, Ascent Classical is hiring and enrolling for the 2023-2024 school year. Learn more about career opportunities, new student enrollment, and how to bring an Ascent Classical Academy to your community at ascentclassical.org. Welcome to this week's episode of Quiddity on the Circe Podcast Network, where we engage in the classical spirit of inquiry. I'm your guide, Brandon LeBlanc. Uh, I am joined today by a special guest. I'm pretty, pretty excited about this. As you know, the Circe Institute uh, has published a couple of volumes of Plutarch's Lives uh, by the Hicks. Uh, most recently, we have a book that uses Plutarch's Life of Caesar, as well as Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, to take a look at uh, the person of Shake of, of Caesar, Julius Caesar. Uh, but joining me today is Alex Petkus, who is the uh, founder of ancientlifecoach.com and host of his own show, The Cost of Glory, uh, which is a podcast uh, devoted to many things, all things Plutarch. So welcome, Alex. Thanks for being here with us today. Thanks, Brandon. Great to be here with you. Uh, I was excited. I, I met Alex a few years ago uh, at, I think, an SCL conference, um, then lost his business card. And then turns out we have a mutual friend here in the Houston area. So that was fortuitous. But uh, I've been wanting to have him on for a little while now and uh, to hear more about Plutarch. So Alex, if you could just let us know a little bit about what you do over at ancientlifecoach.com and then a little bit about uh, what goes on on your podcast, The Cost of Glory. Yes. Uh, well, at ancientlifecoach.com, it was kind of the uh, umbrella for a variety of different ideas um, that I've wor been working on. We've got a summer tour that we're running in Rome this summer, and we'll do more next year, a kind of classical tour with an educational component that's you know, classical rhetoric in Rome, see the places where the, the greatest speeches were made and do some public speaking practice on your own. So things like that. But the main project really is, is the podcast, The Cost of Glory, which is an idea that I had a a while back that kind of comes out of my experience teaching classics in university settings. I used to be an academic and uh, left academia, I left a tenure track job in 2020 and always was struck at how well students responded to Plutarch's lives. I know you guys have done a lot of work on Plutarch's lives and that's Anybody who's read Plutarch knows how uh, great of a, a storyteller he is and what what the high quality of the material. And I basically have the idea of putting Plutarch's lives in a more digestible audio form because I, I as a busy dad and you know somebody building my career, didn't have a lot of time to read extra stuff when I was an academic, and so I would I started getting into audiobooks and podcasts. A few years ago, and I tried to listen to the Plutarch audiobooks. And, you know, I should know this stuff pretty well, being a classicist. And I just, uh, I, I found it very difficult. I'd get lost really quickly. The language is beautiful and not terribly difficult to read, but to listen to while you're folding a laundry or trying to cook, it's just a little bit too much to, to take in. So I'm, I'm basically trying to retell the biographies of Plutarch. And I've got through about I think I've got through seven of them, and I and I and I retell these stories, and I also um, will take a look at classical texts that I uh, encounter on the way in my research. Like, just did a series on Xenophon's Anabasis, this great adventure story about his, uh, you know, a student of Socrates, Xenophon, and his first person. Well, he writes it in the third person, but it's a, kind of an account of his adventures, and so so things like that. It's it's a way for me to communicate my knowledge of the classics and kind of share my passion and also give people something that they can listen to without necessarily reading the book without necessarily doing a course of study, but hopefully um, get the gist and get the story and also trying to stay, stay true to the spirit of Plutarch, which is um, great storytelling and life lessons. 
it's very applicable in Plutarch's eyes. So that's that's my main gig right now. So uh, is 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 Plutarch the ancient life coach then of, of ancientlifecoach.com? Is that the idea that he's the one? Yeah, the name kind of came out of this realization when I was writing my dissertation that uh, so I wrote my uh, did a lot of research on ancient philosophers in antiquity. And I was especially interested in their correspondences. They, we have a lot of letters from these guys. And so you can know a lot about how they arrange their lives and what kind of people they were in the world. And I had this realization that the a philosopher like Plato or Isocrates or Plutarch or the later figures that I was looking at, Plotinus, I mean, in a way, they're a lot more like a Tony Robbins than <laughs> like, a, than like a, an academic, than like a Steve Pinker or something. They're not really institutional intellectuals they're they're self-help gurus in a lot of ways and it's kind of i just thought it was a funny idea to think of them as like this can plutarch can be your your ancient life coach and and i try to treat him that way as i mean basically looking at the ancient texts as genuine useful self-help literature in the best sense personal development personal growth kind of material I think it really works. I think they work better. And it's something that we're trained not to do as professional academics. So I kind of wanted to ironically cut back at that. So that's where the, the name ancient life coach comes from. Tell me a little bit more about that. When you say we're trained not to do it in, in modern academia, uh, to you, does the institution want to institutionalize these guys maybe in a way? I think so. Well, it's, you know, there's a lot of angles that you can come at about it, but, um, so I'll just tell a story that illustrates my experience uh, with ancient history, at least. So I, I kind of straddled ancient philosophy and ancient history when I uh, was up, when I was an academic. I was teaching a gr- big lecture hall history class at a one of the institutions I taught at, and I asked a colleague of mine for feedback because it was my one of my first times teaching a big class like this, and I wanted to get better at lecturing and. So my colleague came to my class and it happened to be the day that I was talking about the constitution of Athens, the democracy in the classical period and the way that the Athenians arranged their demography, their political voting units to have the best balance. And there's a story that you tell about this figure, Cleisthenes, that it's kind of the the received ancient story about Cleisthenes and, you know, how he picked certain people from the hills, certain people from the sea, certain people from the plains of Athens, and he kind of mixed them all together into the same voting districts. And so he made people that had divergent interests have to vote together. So there's a nice story there. And I told the story of Cleisthenes, and and I spiced it up a little bit because there are some kind of uh, kind of lurid tales around the life of Cleisthenes, assassinations of tyrants, and they're, they're children of tyrants, and um, it gets a little spicy. And I. You know, I just kind of, I told a nice story for the, for the students. They were, <laughs> they were pretty engaged and I did put a diagram up there of, you know, voting blocks and I got into the analysis, but afterwards my colleague gave me written up advice and, uh, and feedback. And my colleague said, good, but a little too much narrative. <laughs> and I knew exactly what my colleague meant that you know, as ancient historians, we're supposed to um, spend most of our time analyzing, critiquing, kind of challenging the narrative that ancient sources are giving to us and coming up with our own presentation that is supposed to be closer to the the facts or the truth or whatever we, you know, we were doing something else other than telling engaging stories. And I think that that really illustrated for me that we're we're training ourselves to do something that that is maybe not what people are connecting best with. It's not unlocking the value innately if um if we're resisting the thing that people find most appealing about these texts. I feel like we're constant i that's how I felt. And I you could tell a similar kind of account of how ancient philosophers uh, today mostly aren't really looking at Plato for spiritual guidance they're more interested in his arguments and analyzing them and kind of training themselves to analyze arguments same thing about aristotle and most of the 
philosophers, maybe the, with the exception of the Stoics, you, you, you occasionally get a closet Stoic as an academic, but most <laughs> of you're just not supposed to treat these texts as, as normative and as like guides to your life, because that would kind of impinge upon your objectivity as a, as a, as a sanctioned knowledge producer in society. And it really kind of ends up sucking all the blood out of it for people. And I think that, you know, I came to the, re the realization, it's not any surprise that we're struggling with enrollments where we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot with our methodology. And I, that kind of motivated me to want to do something different after a while. Does okay. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense for us around here where the normative part of, of the normative part is the education, right? That's, that's, that's what we're going to wrestle with the ideas, uh, not to, um, not to discredit, I guess, out of hand, but uh, that's good. Um, so, so why? Let's let's look a little bit about why Plutarch became your focus. Um, you know, kind of at the in the broadest sense, why in particular is Plutarch relevant uh, today? Yeah, well, I think Emerson put it pretty well. He has this essay on Plutarch, who he adored. And Emerson just uh, was in incredibly influenced by Plutarch and knew him very well. And he said, you know, many people today uh, uh, admire Thucydides, this ancient historian of the Peloponnesian War, is a great author. And many people admire other authors for this and that reason. And maybe, maybe they would say that Thucydides is a greater author than Plutarch. But probably for every... Hunt for every hundred readers of Plutarch, there's one reader of Thucydides because Plutarch's just so much more accessible. And chances are that that one reader of Thucydides, Thucydides owes to Plutarch because somebody read Plutarch and they wanted to learn more. And he's always served that role in, in the modern world uh, since the Renaissance, where he's been kind of the best starting point for antiquity for a lot of people. And maybe we should talk about who Plutarch is, um, just to remind people what, what what he's about. So Plutarch is a Greek living in the Roman Empire around the time of, he's born around the time St. Paul died, maybe 55 or so AD. And he's living in the the Pax Romana, the <laughs> what, what it's called by scholars today, the, the, the great Roman peace, this unprecedented period of peace and tranquility for the most part, uh, in the in the Mediterranean, and he's he's a he's a philosopher. He's 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 a provincial kind of noble, pretty small town guy, and he falls in love with philosophy as a young man. He trains at Athens with some philosophers, and Plutarch comes to the realization that the best way. As I interpret it, the best way for him to get a message out, to improve other people's lives, to, to unlock the value of philosophy for his contemporaries is to tell great stories about people that are widely admired by society. And so he, he decided to take on this project of writing a, a book, a series of lives called a book, a series of uh, small biographies called the parallel lives and they are all uh, men who died at least 100 years before he wrote and they all come from this so they all basically the last guy is mark antony who dies in 31 bc and the first one is theseus who's a completely mythical character but most of them are, are genuine historical figures. And they all kind of, it's a, it's a series of biographies, basically, that spans from the mythic periods before recorded history and goes through, I think, without any significant breaks every year of ancient history up, up until 31 BC. So you've, you've got the Persian Wars in the 490s with the lives of Themistocles and Aristides. Before that, you've got Solon. You've got the founding of Sparta, the founding of Rome, Romulus and Remus. And you go through and you've got the Peloponnesian War, the great conflict between Athens and Sparta. You've got Alexander the Great, the Hannibalic Wars for Rome. You've got, and the, the kind of the greatest saga of them all for Plutarch is the fall of the Roman Republic. 
which is the transition from uh, you know, oligarchy, representative government, well, not, not representative, but a republic to a, a monarchy. Julius Caesar, of, of course, is the main character there. And Plutarch is the main source for much of our knowledge of, of this period um, historically. But he's also just a literary genius. And this is one of the reasons why Shakespeare took so strongly to Plutarch. Hmm. He's Julius Caesar is heavily based on Plutarch's biographies of the men around that period, Cato, Caesar, Cicero. He's like the primary source for Shakespeare's Rome. Mark Antony with his Antony Cleopatra. Also Coriolanus, who's an earlier Roman figure, kind of a tragic mm -hmm. figure. So um, so Plutarch has just um, just been a source for and he, he wrote he wrote other other texts. He wrote a long um, series of essays, the Moralia, but but the Parallel Lives is uh, is his main work. There's 48 biographies, and there's basically he paired a Roman and a Greek with each other. And um, you know Alexander and Caesar, he he looked at a Roman and a Greek that he thought were similar, and that's um, and he decided that biography and, and the reason he did this is essentially he came to the conclusion that biography is uh, just a really effective way to grow the character of another person to help for for us to grow our own characters by by reading the stories of people who may not have been perfect but understanding their characters helps us to develop our own and avoid their mistakes learn from their virtues so that's the big idea behind plutarch and why i think he's still relevant today is because human nature is still basically the same hmm. Yeah, so we, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we have two books that are two pairs, I guess, uh, out from Circe, um, the Statesman and, and the Lawgivers, um, and so, yes, kind of some new, new translations um, with a lot of annotation. But uh, so we're 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 fans of, of Plutarch's work, and I think that's a really good. Uh, way to place him as a kind of an introduction to a lot of these other things and through through narratives of individual men leading into this kind of greater uh, expanse of, of ancient history. And then obviously the, having them as comparisons is also helpful for that. Yeah, and I think he's trying to encourage us to compare ourselves mm -hmm. with these comparisons. He's practicing the art of, uh, you know, moral evaluation through these, and he, he actually writes little essays to compare them and Right. Cases they survive. Um, but I think that's just kind of like he's modeling like how we're supposed to approach these texts for ourselves. Like you compare yourself to Sertorius or Aristides. Do I measure up? That's kind of the point to kind of encourage you to be ambitious, but also know the the dangers inherent in ambition. So it's it's kind of a complete a complete moral education, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we wanted to practice that a little bit today uh, on the podcast. Um, uh, you know, looking into to one of these lives, um, maybe for folks who haven't aren't familiar with with Plutarch, haven't read any of the works yet. Um, uh, I think oftentimes we get we're daunted by the idea of reading some ancient text, thinking it's going to be something so far above us but i think that's probably a, a a product of the academia we were discussing earlier where in fact so many of the things are our narrative or our dialogue like in when you get when you come to plato um and are actually highly readable in a, with, right. with a good translation um and and very approachable so we just wanted to look at that a little bit today you assigned for me um professor uh, petkus uh one of the dialogues that i mean one of the lives that i had not read yet um Sulla. So uh I read Sulla. Um uh Excellent and before work. what's that? Excellent work. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh and so um before I before we jump into you taking over as, as Professor Petkus uh and, and and taking me through Sulla, I want to ask you uh, um why do you think Plutarch was interested in Sulla uh to begin with? Yeah, it's a good question because um you know most of the, the characters Plutarch details he really admires they're like great men who were good men in the in most cases they had a few flaws but sulla and there's a few cases like this sulla is a character that plutarch is very ambivalent about 
But here's, I'll just read you a quote from Plutarch about how he thinks of most characters. And this is from the life of Timoleon, a lesser known character, but this is the introduction. He says, I began the writing of my lives for the sake of others, but I find that I am continuing the work and delighting in it now for my own sake also. I love this part. Using history as a mirror and endeavoring in a manner to fashion and adorn my life in conformity with the virtues therein depicted. So he's He's getting something out of this too. He's, he's telling you about it. For the result is like nothing else than daily living and associating together with these men that he's writing about. When I receive and welcome each subject of my history in turn as my guest, so to speak, he's like hosting them in his house. And I observe carefully how large and how, uh, how large he was and of what mean. That's a quote from Homer. And then I select from his career what is most important and most beautiful to know. And oh, what greater joy than this canst thou obtain and more efficacious for moral improvement. So he really believes that, you know, it's about kind of getting somebody into your house that you want to be like, right? Mm. But Sulla is a very ambiguous character for him. So is Lysander is another one of these, Demetrius, the city sacker, also Mark Antony, people that Plutarch, they were unquestionably great in stature and and this is one of the reasons i think plutarch's very um well what i think he's interested in sola primarily and, and some of these guys that he finds more problematic because he knows that people know who they are hmm. and he can get your attention and he's not afraid to give you a kind of a cautionary tale in his opinion hmm. um and and yet i think maybe you saw this a little bit in the life of sola he still thinks it's like he's, I think he's almost like a better storyteller than he is a philosopher. Not that he's not a good philosopher, but he's just such a, he has such an eye for character and for yeah complexity of a person that he's, he really puts a lot into the story. And it's not just kind of like a, like a shallow morality tale about a bad guy. Like he, he kind of gets the virtues and the vices of all those characters. Yeah. So, so Sulla is, um is of interest to him, I think because, well, he was he just had such a profound effect on on roman history and um yeah uh, maybe we should talk a little about who sulla is yeah i yes i mean I, plutarch is i think he's such an interesting writer because he's at he's in such an interesting position right he is greek but he's in but he's a roman citizen um or he's at least under the pax romana um and he's at this moment in history where I mean, for us, especially Christians in the West, that are Christians is the turn, right? He's he's in the first century uh, AD as he's living and writing, and so he's he's capturing a lot of the ancient world uh, as it's about to move out of being the ancient world uh, right. in the in the next few hundred years, um, and so uh, and we you know kind of move into the era of Christendom, and you know just a few years after a few hundred years after him. And so it, 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 it's an interesting position for him to be in. And, you know, when he compares these lives, sometimes he seems to lean, lean toward one or the other in the comparisons we get. Um, and so it, I do find that interesting. I, I will do my best now as the student to, to do my part and, and give us the, a short narration of the life yes. of Sulla. So uh, Sulla is from a, a, a noble family, but it's a family that's fallen into into disgrace uh, a few generations back. It seems like uh, I think is one of one of his ancestors um, having taken too much silver. Apparently, yes. um, uh, has put them kind of out of the Senate. Uh, by the time we get to 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 Lucius Cornelius Sulla's lifetime, and so. While technically one of the, you know, in the in the noble ranks, he's kind of lives as a uh, more as a commoner, at least early in early life. Um, and Plutarch lets us know he's he's kind of got these two two modes. He's he's either um, living it up with the kind of lower ish class in in Rome, um, or a- he's very serious if he's when it when the matters of state come up or he's in and he's got the opportunity so he he kind of starts his his political career as a as a uh under marius as a uh and now i'm gonna blank on which which roman title it is but 
when Roma, when when Marius is a is I think consul, he's he, he's underneath him. He's a he's a quaestor. So he's a quaestor, one of the first elected ranks, kind of okay, a yeah, officer, about age thirty. All of those ones that end in or they have to kind of keep straight what's the what the hierarchy is. Um, quaestor and and praetor and all those things, and so he he's he very quickly has some success in that role, um, but in a way that rubs Marius the wrong way uh, as he engages with uh, the king Bocas and takes care of Bocas's own son-in-law for him, thus winning him over to kind of a good relationship with the Romans. Uh, and, and Sulla has kind of built up his wealth through, right previous to this, through through kind of wooing um, one lady before she dies and, and then uh, in and then there's an inheritance from his stepmother as well. Yes, he was uh, very handsome and very charming. And Yes, uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, so he rubs Marius the wrong way pretty early on, but Marius keeps him in his service for a while before he switches and, and, and goes uh, to work under uh, Catalyst. And he continues to have success militarily and in and, and, and statecraft um, with with uh, enemies of, of Rome and, and um, vassals, I guess, of Rome. And continues to build build it up until he, uh, and then ultimately marries one of the uh, a daughter of the chief priest, um, which many thought was above him, but he managed to pull that off, and gets involved with the Mithridatic War. And yeah, Mithridates is this king in the right. east. He's uh, he's trying to steal all these lands from Rome, and he's causing quite a quite a fuss. Yeah, and gathering gathering power, um, and it's that war. The, it's kind of the engagement of that war that kind of halts his his argument with Marius for a little while as they they both have to kind of deal with what's going on with Rome. Um, but again, he's he's incredibly successful. Uh, and every time he does this, he's he's getting accolades that rub Marius the wrong way and um, and continues to kind of build animosity between the two of them. Uh, so this um, is a social war. Yeah. You're, yeah. There's, so there's the, the revolt of the Italians. There's so many wars going on. At the time. <laughs> yeah. And they end up fighting on the same side during the social wars, um, it, which are very close to home for Rome. They're, they're allies all you know, defect and it's a big, big problem. Yeah. So that, yeah, they have this kind of brewing beef between each other, Marius and Sulla, but, you know, this keeps it keeps it at bay for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And and over time, Marius is is older and Sulla, you know, begins aging and starting to show his age. And Sulla can is kind of hitting his prime uh, as as a military commander and and statesman in some ways. But he's he's he can be kind of capricious with where when he shows mercy and when he when he doles out intense punishment. And that comes out uh, when he when he's engaging with the Greeks in, uh, in war. Uh, it comes out when he marches his own troops back into Rome. And uh, this continues to be a problem that kind of puts him at odds with some of the rest of the noble and senatorial class throughout the rest of his life. And so he continues to be it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a contentious rise to power for sure for him um, that 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 tends to have a lot of support from the the common people because of his his engagement with them um and then is always a little precarious when it comes to who his allies are uh kind of among the nobility class noble class yeah you um, can kind of, i mean this is one of the really interesting things about sulla that you know he he really there's these two basic poles of roman politics at this time there's the populists the populares who are kind of appealing to the masses and then there's the optimates who mm -hmm. are the staid aristocratic nobility and you know, earlier in his career, it kind of seemed like he could have gone either way because Marius is more on the side of the populists. So, and, you know, he's kind of slumming it with the actors and uh, he's not that rich. Sulla, I mean, but he ends up kind of falling into the into the arms of the optimates. Maybe, and I talk about this in my podcast, it's not really clear why he goes that direction, but it could have been just because he saw Marius was the big man among the popular party and if he tried to be a populist, he would have always been under the thumb of Marius. Mm -hmm. Want to be under the thumb of Marius, and so there's a kind of a lack of charisma on the optimates in this period. And Sulla's kind of sizing up the situation, I think, and he says, "I could, I could lead this faction. I could rise to lead this faction. I don't have to, you know, be under under Marius anymore." Something like that. Uh, 
Yeah. And so, I mean, he's ultimately relatively successful in his campaigns outside of Rome and, and then is able to, to rise to power in, in, in his return. Uh, but um, even up to the, toward the end of his life, when he's not, when he's fairly ill, he, he's able to kind of uh, take out some political rivals and, and from his deathbed and, uh, mm-hmm. and com- command a lot of power and respect, you know, a lot of, by the, at the time of this writing for Plutarch, there's still a lot of monuments uh, put up by Sala or Sulla or in, in honor of Sulla. And so he has this kind of, um, I, you, I, you know, you mentioned it a little bit earlier. He, he, there's kind of a, he's kind of an ambiguous figure for Plutarch. Um, and even among uh, probably Romans that to have someone who is kind of on the outs uh, as a, you know, uh, you know, technically of the right class, but but pretty far outside the the halls of power to start out his life, um, rise in such a way and, and kind of maneuver his way into the into the, his final position. So that that was kind of my reading of the story, which I found really interesting. He's uh, there. He doesn't do uh, you know we don't get a lot of a lot of big reforms in his story or, or you know things things kind of changes made within Rome it's it's more a, a matter of him maneuvering and and then being victorious and being and being both brave and and cunning when it comes to enemies his enemies without and the enemies within uh, Rome yeah um, and, and I think so much of the ambiguity about Sulla has to do with this conflict that 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 kind of breaks out with it starts with Marius but it ends up Marius dies and he's not able to really carry it on but marius's party his successors end up uh well marius kind of picks a fight with sulla mm-hmm, they they go to they kind of can have this quarrel over who should lead the war against mithridates who is this eastern dynast and everybody thinks okay if we go fight this war in the east it's going to be just a gold and jewels and it's just going to be easy an easy win and we're all going to get super rich and there's going to be a lot of glory and so they're fighting over this and Sulla ends up uh, winning kind of by force marius tries through some legal schemes to 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 depose Sulla the command and Sulla uh says um you know legal in spirit but not in in uh legal to the letter but not in spirit and he and he, he actually marches on rome and uh exiles marius and then he goes and fights the war and kind of beats mithridates though not finally and then and then after marius dies sola comes back and marius's friends have taken over the city of rome and they've declared sola to be a public enemy in his absence so he fights this whole campaign in the east and in, in Greece, actually. He sieges the city of Athens and brutally suppresses them as oh, I uh my back. Yeah, yeah. No worries. Yeah, so so where was I? I mean, Sulla brutally suppresses uh the Athenians when they try to they um you know hold out against Rome. They they were rebellious and you know like like you said he he's he's just he can be very merciful but he can be very vicious in his punishments and um and he when he comes back to to rome you know he he has this bloody civil war that he fights against yeah. uh, and and he plutarch doesn't really bring this out but this is a war that had a body count of like six figures in terms of roman citizens dying in the civil war so it's an, actually an extremely bloody period. It's even maybe more bloody than the the wars under Julius Caesar and Pompey. Huh. And uh, and at the end of the day, Sulla ends up kind of trying to keep things from changing for the most part in Rome. He doesn't really do any major reforms. He does he does end the power of the tribunes, which is kind of interesting if you know Roman history. But you know he uh, he he essentially just wins a civil war and then dies shortly thereafter uh, after brutally punishing all of his enemies and going on to these uh, proscriptions, which is um, this tool that he came up with for punishing his enemies. He would write the names of the people that had wronged him on a big plaque in the center of town. And basically it was a list of bounties 
on the heads of some of the most wealthy and influential men in Rome. And they, you know, you were going to get your gold if you brought the head back of one of yeah. the enemies of Sulla. And so it was just horrifying, um, seared on the imagination of people. And yet so many people loved Sulla. So many of the soldiers loved Sulla. So many people thought of him as the good guy. Yeah. You imagine. So yeah, deeply ambiguous figure for Plutarch. Yeah, he. I mean, he bring. It mentioned that he brings back the di- dictatorship as a as a role, which had been out for about over like a hundred years, I think. Yeah, yeah, um, very important and, precedent for Julius Caesar. Yeah, <laughs> true, very true. Caesar gets that idea from him too. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, because it would have been just they they overlap a little bit, right? Um, or just yeah. before? Actually, Sulla almost has the boy Caesar executed. After he wins the civil war, Julius Caesar's like 18 and he's oh, just wow. married. He married. That's really young for a Roman to marry. So he's, he's ambitious. That's a sign that he's yeah, yeah, yeah. trying to climb up. And Sulla, actually, he Julius Caesar married a the daughter of an enemy of Sulla, one of Sulla, Sulla's main enemies. And so Sulla's like, hey, boy, divorce your wife and I'll pick one for you. And Caesar, Caesar says, no forget you i'm not gonna do that <laughs> i love my wife and and saul is about to like call the hit you know like yeah i think he is and then his friends are like no saul he's just a boy don't do it <laughs> and saul is supposed to have said well fine but you're fools if you don't see many mariuses in that boy yeah i think uh I think now that you say that, that rings a little familiar. I think, uh, does Plutarch bring that account back in Caesar's life? In his yes, life of Caesar? He does. He does. Okay. Yeah. When he's recounting kind of Caesar's younger days. But that was Sulla. Yeah. Who owned yeah. Him. Okay. Yeah. And Sulla's kind of this, this scary figure in several of the Plutarch biographies in, uh, in, in Cato, life of mm. Cato. Cato also has this moment where he stands up as a young man to, Sulla. So yeah. Okay. This is like the the thing that they all remember from their childhood. Cato, Cicero, Caesar, Crassus. Yeah. yeah. All there. And they all they all had some kind of this is like where their story all starts as young men is like right. where were you when the dictator came to town? Right, right. They they all survived, but not by hiding. They were kind of has fortitude and they they become this next wave of leadership in yes. in Rome. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, that's 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 Good. Like I've I've read, I don't know, half a dozen, eight, nine of the lives probably over the last several years. But that's good to kind of place Sulla, right? Um, another reason why maybe he's a life that's in here because he's such an important figure with these other lives that 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 Plutarch's going to cover. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. And and you know, like I said, the the big big cycle for Plutarch is how did the Roman Republic fall? You know. Right. How did, how did it come to be that Julius Caesar fought Pompey? And then how did it come to be that people assassinated Julius Caesar as Shakespeare depicts? And, you know, yeah, you know, you got to know the backstory. And it's Sulla. And he also writes a biography of Marius, who's Sulla's great enemy. So and that's another really great one. Um, Gaius Marius and Sulla and Sertorius. So these are the, the three Roman lives that I've done in my podcast so far. Sertorius is the first I started with. And Sertorius was one of uh, Sulla's um, enemies in the Civil War. And he ends up escaping to Spain and holding out this rebellion Hmm. for 10 years after Sulla wins. And he just basically sets up a rival state in Spain Hmm. by being like the most talented, one of the most talented generals in Roman history. Just this incredible survivor, guerrilla. And it's an amazing story. And that was kind of the one that inspired me. I was like, if if the obscure figures in Plutarch's lives are this good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, like they're all really compelling stories, all 48 of them. Uh, so, so, yeah, um, fascinating. This is all the kind of the previous generation before Julius Caesar. And Caesar would have remembered Sertorius. Sertorius might have been at Julius Caesar's wedding. You know, hmm. Caesar marries Cinna's daughter. Cinna is the colleague of Marius. Marius is married to Caesar's aunt. So these people are all so interconnected. It's just like this right. giant bloody soap opera. 
Excellent. Uh, yeah. So I found, I found, uh, this life fascinating. And, uh, I mean, we've talked a little bit about, you know, why Plutarch, um, you know, may have chosen him. And obviously we're talking about, you know, how, how he's such an important figure. So each other in the lives of his others, what do, what do you see? Uh, well, I'll ask this question two ways. What do you see Plutarch admiring about Sulla? By the way, he writes about him. And then what do you, what do you personally like admire about the character of Sulla, if anything, for kind of looking at things yeah. to emulate, emulate or not emulate in these, in these characters? Yeah. Well, Plutarch observes the thing that every single life of it, that Plutarch writes about, the the character is going to have some of this, in most cases, a whole lot of it, and that's courage. Sulla was an incredibly daring man. Like he, There's this episode in his early career when he's fighting in Africa against Ugurtha, this great wily rebel king um, under Marius, and he, 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 he uses himself as bait basically hmm. in this really daring ploy to essentially kind of trick Ugurtha into letting his guard down and Ugurtha gets betrayed by a family member of his. So it's, it's like Sulla is putting him, puts himself into the, the, the hands of Bocus, King Bocus. And um, Bocus kind of has a choice. Do I want to betray Sulla to Ugurtha or Ugurtha to Sulla? And I think Plutarch says, uh, one ancient source says, several of them say like, he, he was doubting right to the last moment because he's like, huh, my, my family member is a mortal enemy of Rome. And yet if I don't betray my family member, I basically, my kingdom is through. So Sulla hmm. kind of betting that he's going to do the right thing for his, uh, you know, for his, for himself rather than for his poor relative Ugurtha. But, you know, all kinds of situations where Sulla, you know, like there's a passage where he's kind of like, his army's fleeing and he's, um, you know, trying to, when he's fighting Mithridates, his army's in a rout and he grabs a standard and he starts charging against them in the other direction, kind of like Washington at Monmouth. He's like, if you, yeah, for me, a glorious death, my countrymen, you know, if you go home, just remember to tell them that you betrayed your commander at Orcomus. And they're all like, oh, Sulla, let's do it. And they all turn around. So he's very brave. I think that's something you see in a lot of Plutarch heroes. Um, I think that just like you, if you're a, you know, a devotee of ancient history and you're just going to have all these battle scenes, battle narratives, like the real actors are military commanders so often. And he was an incredibly talented military commander, just like lightning fast, knew how to work the land. He knew how to throw up earthworks really quickly, which is just strategically very important in a place like Greece. So he's, he's a very talented commander. He's a really, really talented negotiator. Um, so there's kind of like these qualities of competence that, that nobody can deny. Plutarch certainly can't, can't cast any shade on that. I think he, you know, he admires that about Sulla and he's, you know, he's very winning and charismatic things that Plutarch finds fault with him are, um, are his, you know, he was, he was really, uh, not a slave to pleasure, but he really did not hold back when it came to partying. He was, he loved to have fun. He had many paramours. He had many, many wives. He was a serial monogamist with regards to his wives, but he was not faithful to them. And uh, and everybody talks about this with Sulla that he was just a womanizer, and and not just women. Anyway, so he was he had strong appetites. He just drank hard, but um, but he was uh, you know he was he was a long term thinker, and I think so. Like as far as what I admire about Sulla is i think that it's really interesting how he he's actually you know kind of um kind of funny aspect about it. he he's a lover of culture and i i say that kind of tongue in cheek he he devoted himself to the stage when he was a young man he was he was hmm. always hanging out at the theater and i think it was genuine he actually wrote comedies he wrote these raunchy comedies and he just loved the stage and i think that 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 comes out in his earlier in his later career where he's he's a master of narrative he's just a great storyteller at like which is so important in a civil war because it's like not clear who the good guys are and in a lot of ways the, the people who win a civil war are the people who tell the better story hmm. 
because yeah, like why are we fighting our brothers? Well, you have to really give a convincing answer to that question. Right, right. Story, and he he's able to do that. And he's really funny. He's just uh he's good with a joke. And I think that that kind of partly comes from his training at, at the stage, like writing these comedies and just huh. around and playing. Uh, but but he's also and, and one of the great contributions that he makes to Western civilization, actually. So when he's at Athens, he discovers a library, some um some Greek that was uh sadly lost their life in the siege and sack of Athens, like so many of the Athenians, left a library of the works of Aristotle. I think Plutarch mentions this, but essentially, uh, unlike Plato's dialogues, Aristotle, after he died, Aristotle died like 300 years before all this is happening, 250 years. The students of Aristotle, like Aristotle just didn't have a great inheritance plan or like his works were kind of um, lost for a while. They got put in a private collection and nobody was reading Aristotle's works, unlike Plato's works, unlike many of the other philosophers. And Sulla finds these books and he uh, he you know, confiscates them and he sends them back to Rome to a, an Aristotelian scholar. And, and it, it, scholars think that it's basically the, the library that Sulla found at Athens and took care to preserve and put in the right hands is the source of all of our knowledge, basically all the books of Aristotle that we read today. Huh. You know, think about Aristotle's ethics, the poetics, yeah. the, it's all that stuff we kind of owe to Sulla. They were apparently just like in the musty basement getting eaten by worms. So, you know, he, he, he has his contribution to culture. And I mean, there's a lot you could say that's, that's negative about him, about his, you know, the, the proscriptions were very savage and, uh, won him a very bad reputation among later um, politicians, thinkers, historians. But he did operate with a sense of justice of his own. It's a kind of a Homeric justice. It's that do great harm to your enemies and do great good to your friends mm-hmm. that you find that Plato criticizes. Um, but he was he, at, at, on his tombstone. Let's see if I can find this quote. Uh, on his tombstone, it was written. Oh yeah, I'm... here lies Sulla, <laughs> whom no friend ever surpassed in doing kindnesses, nor any enemy in doing mischief. So that was kind of how yeah. we remember. Yeah. Like I got him back. <laughs> That's uh, yeah. Uh, and Plutarch is very ambivalent about this, and he's a Platonist. Um, so you know he he's just not. That's not Plutarch's moral code. Right. Um, but it was Sulla's. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, you know, I know I haven't read it, but I know that this life is paired with Lysander. Uh, before we go, uh, if we've wet, just in case we've wet the appetite of some folks out there, yeah. do you want to give just like a, a brief, just kind of bio of who Lysander was, his Greek, the kind of the Greek counterpart in this, in this set? Yes, yes. And I'll pitch my podcast too. So I, I've done the life of Sulla retold uh, on the Cost of Glory podcast. And I also I've been moving in pairs. So okay. Far. And so I did Lysander first. Okay. So I've done these both. And Lysander is another incredibly fascinating figure, a deeply ambiguous figure who is the Spartan who defeated the Athenians. And not just that he defeated them at sea on their own turf because hmm. they're famously a naval power. And the Spartans just terrible on water. And Sparta figured it out. Lysander figured it out. He figured out how to defeat the Athenians at sea. And for a while was the most important man in Greece after he defeated the Athenians. Also just a a very, very uh, brutal to his enemies, wonderful to his friends kind of guy. A terrifying man for, for many Greeks. But um, I, I think, you know, Lysander is another great, great story for just understanding a, a period that we really care about. Sulla's, you know, we we really care about the childhoods of the mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. The, um, the great drama of the Roman, fall of the Roman Republic. Lysander is the life that straddles the death of Socrates. So when, when Socrates yeah. is executed, if you ever read Plato's Apology, mm-hmm. Socrates talks about the 30 
the 30 tyrants, which right, are right. 30 oligarchs that were installed in Athens after the Spartans defeated them in the Peloponnesian War, who were supposed to keep the city pro, pro Sparta, loyal to Sparta, and not let any de- democratic shenanigans get out of hand. And they ended up being very brutal and repressive. Lysander was the man who put the 30 in power. Okay. So that story is, I, I tell it in the life of Lysander, and it's it's kind of there in Plutarch as well, you know, how he installs the 30, how he picks them, why he picks them, and also why they fall. And uh, and so Socrates appears a few times, but this is just a, such a pivotal period for, for later Greek history, you know, because Athens could have gone the way of being a Spartan vassal state. Mm-hmm. It didn't. Uh, Lysander tried to make it that way, but it didn't work. Um, and in it, it ended up Socrates kind of was killed as a kind of as a as a result of, you know, he, he had he had been associated with some of the members of the 30. Plato's uncle was one of the leading tyrants of the 30. So it's, it's just it's very complicated and gives you so much like contours and nuances to the story of Socrates and Plato, Xenophon, too. So, yeah, that's my uh, kind of long winded pitch for read, read the life of Lysander. And if you Excellent. don't have time to get out the book, you know, check out the Cost of Glory episodes on it when you're driving or biking or washing your dishes. Oh, very cool. Uh, well, this has been a lot of fun. Um, thank you, Alex, for, for joining us today. Uh, I'll make sure we have the links to to uh, Cost of Glory, the podcast, and then to the ancientlifecoach.com site. I'm sure lots of people who are interested both in hearing about the stories from Plutarch, uh, but uh, I know that my, my ears pr- pricked up when you said the summer trips to Rome. So I'm sure there'll be some people in our listening audience into that too. So um, I'll make sure we get all that information over there. Uh, But thank you again for joining us. Been a pleasure, Brandon. Thanks a lot. Thank you all for joining us on Quiddity as we refreshed ourselves at Systems of Learning dug long ago, drawing from springs too deep for taint. You can send your comments and questions to podcast at searcyinstitute.org. You can also join the Quiddity conversation on the Searcy Circle at searcy.circle.so. Join us next week for another episode and be sure to check out the other shows on the Cersei Podcast Network.